Well, if you have a Bible, I hope that you do, please turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 10. Uh, on this Lord's Day, we continue with our series, um, the importance of uh, the Lord's Supper. We look at this morning, uh, the Lord's Supper is a covenant sign. Um, the Lord's Supper is a covenant sign, and we want to look together in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, and uh, this is, after all, the Lord's Day, and we rejoice in that. We can gather together around the Word. And First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, um, we will look at verses 16 and 17 this morning. First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, and then, Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll start our journey through 2 Samuel together. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, when you have found that place, I am going to ask, if you're physically able to do so, to stand one more time as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 16, hear the word of the Lord that's given to us. Thus says the Lord, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Let's pray together. Father, it is in the name of Jesus we gather and we are thankful for your grace that has come to us. The fact that you have created a covenant for us to rejoice, that we rejoice in this covenant of, of, of grace, this covenant of redemption. Uh, Father, we praise you for this, and we would ask now that as we look at the Lord's Supper as a covenant sign, that you would bless you would bless our time together in the Word, that we would be encouraged and edified in it, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. you can be seated. So throughout the Bible, covenants are found. Covenants are found throughout Scripture. Uh, the, 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 the idea of covenants are all over the Bible. Uh, you cannot uh, look anywhere uh, without seeing the idea of covenants throughout Scripture. Uh, and, and so while there are several different covenants, there are three that stand out above all of them. There are three covenants that stand out above all of them. What are they? Well, let me list them for you in, in what I think is, is at least historical order for us. The first is what is called the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. Now, you won't find that phrase anywhere in Scripture. However, you will find the idea blatantly presented in places like John chapter 6, verse 37, John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And the covenant of redemption literally refers to a covenant that was made in eternity past between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to redeem the, a people for God, for his glory, and for our eternal good as his people. And so th that is the, the first idea, I think, that is clearly presented throughout Scripture. We see that, as I said, in John 6 and, and following. Then we see a second major covenant throughout the Bible, and that is the covenant of works. The covenant of works is sometimes called the covenant of creation, or sometimes you'll hear it called the Edemic covenant. But all this really is was a covenant that God made with Adam as our federal head, right? And everyone who would descend from him by ordinary uh, generation, that's right, ordinary means being born of a, the union of a man and a woman, and were under the terms of this covenant. But Adam, uh, and, and God, God proclaimed this covenant by simply giving him a commandment, you shall not eat. That's it. You shall not eat of the fruit. It was a covenant of works, and Adam miserably failed as our covenant head, as our, as our federal head of humanity. 
And this is, this is, this, this is how he represented us. And I think we see that uh, his failed obedience, uh, we see this covenant of works clearly presented to us in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and Genesis 2, 15 through 17. We also, I think, see it in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, and again in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Lastly, I think there is a, the third major covenant that's found within Scripture, and that is the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. That is that when Adam sinned and ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree, God could have justly and rightly left every one of us of the human race in condemnation and ultimately judgment, but he chose not to. He chose not to cut us off, but instead he freely chose to show his grace by saving those who would repent and believe from their sin and their guilt to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus who ultimately fulfills this covenant. It is Christ Jesus through his death and his burial and his resurrection who ultimately fulfills this covenant. He was the one who lived a sinless and perfect life, coming and being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, Dying in our place upon the cross, he was guilty. Uh, he stood. Uh, he stood in our place, uh, being accounted not that he was guilty, but accounted as as guilty and sinful on our in our place. He was condemned, and he 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 was um, he was judged, and in our place, and he by result fulfills the covenant of grace that the Lord made with his people. Now, why do I start by telling you all of this? Well, I start by telling you all of this because you need to understand that at the very heart of, of, of God's relationship to humanity, there's a covenant relationship. Uh, from Genesis to Revelation, it is a covenant relationship. And nothing I'm going to present to you is, is unique to me or is uniquely, uniquely mine, um, so, so I just want to make that clear. But I do want us to understand that covenant theology helps us understand what to do with the Old Testament. And how the New Testament is the fulfillment and how the New Testament actually fulfills the promise of the Old Testament. And I think it causes us to really see the glorious structure of God's plan of salvation and how God's plan of salvation worked itself out throughout history for the glory of God and for our eternal good. And so when we talk about things like the Lord's Supper, communion when we speak of these things we need to speak of these things within the framework of a covenant sign a covenant work because it is the expression of the new covenant and we know this and and i brought some of this out last week we know for instance that paul is giving the church at corinth and instructions particularly from what jesus did back in the gospel of matthew in matthew chapter 26 Jesus is celebrating uh, the Passover, and Jesus then in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 17, this is the, we, we, find, we find this, and it says, Now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where will you that, or where will you that we prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man and say to him, The master says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples." And the disciples did just as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. Why is this significant? Because ultimately, the context of the Lord's Supper of communion is and was historically in the framework 
of Passover. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the promises within, contained within the old covenant and the Passover framework which God gave to us. The context of the Lord's Supper is, is, is in fact, is in fact the Passover and Jesus' fulfillment of the promise of the Passover. And I don't know if you know this, but I'll give you just a little bit of, of, of historical understanding here about Passover. You know that there were actually uh, four cups within the Passover. The first was the first cup revolved around Israel's bondage in, in Egypt. The second cup centered around the deliverance that God prepared for his people. Right In Exodus 6.6, 6, uh, the third cup centered around the redemption that God secured through the Exodus um, and purchasing them for his own in Exodus again, 6.6. 6. And then the fourth cup was known as the cup of consummation in Exodus 6.7. Why is any of this important? Because Jesus didn't give us four or five cups. He gave us one cup, and in giving us one cup, he fulfilled the promises of all of what Passover was meant to represent, just the same as the bread. And we'll talk more about that being his body. But the language of the Lord's Supper, even the language of the Lord's Supper, as we read throughout, throughout um, the, the New Testament, we read of the language of covenant. We read of the language of covenant. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 26, in the passage that I, 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 I uh, quoted earlier, Matthew chapter 26, in verse 26, I'm sorry, in verse 28, listen to what he says. For this is my blood of the new, now, now uh, my translation has testament, but the better translation of that word is covenant. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus himself employed covenant language when talking about and instituting the Lord's Supper. And we'll talk about why this is all so very important. And within all of this, right, we keep before us the fulfillment of Exodus chapter 24, right, that God's covenant with Abraham and with his children, that, that is, that, that is, that's the framework in which Exodus occurs and the fulfillment in which Jesus then gives us through himself, through his body and through his blood upon the cross and his resurrection. He fulfills the promise of this. Going back to Exodus chapter 24, God bringing forth in his providence and his glory uh, and his, for his own glorification brought, brought forth the patriarch and the children to Egypt where they were protected and then became slaves and ultimately then were brought out and God fulfilled this without any question as to his faithfulness God answered right God answered his promises he fulfilled them right now now surely uh, there were some people that were filled with all sorts of questions right uh, God's people were, right? So God answered these questions by sending a deliverer, right? And this deliverer would prefigure Jesus, and his name was Moses. He would powerfully lead the captives out into the, whole, into the wilderness and do a covenant renewal ceremony. And then Exodus 24 later on goes through the blood of the covenant, the sprinkling of the blood that was, that was slain and then, and then smeared on the doorposts, and on and on it goes. Because in the act of a covenant, there is, in reality, an obligation. You know that? Within a covenant, there is an obligation. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is simply this. A covenant is not a contract. A contract deals with 
your interests and, and my interests in how I can make a dollar or, or how I can be protected in this agreement. Whereas in a covenant, a covenant leads to oath making. It's literally a vow uh, whereby it is about self-sacrificing and it is about, um, it is about putting yourself underneath the authority of another. And so the, the reality here is that when Moses commanded the children of Israel to sprinkle, literally to smear the blood of the, of the lamb on the doorposts, right, it was the blood of the covenant that God saw and, represent, and saw represented on their doorposts. And it was a covenant of obligation, first on the part of God, to protect his people, to watch over his people, to bring his people out, to protect his people, to guard his people, to guide his people, to be their protector and their shepherd. And on the part of the worshiper then, it is that they promised that they would solely be committed to their God. They would be fully committed to their God. And the ultimate end then in all of this in the Passover was a sign, the nature of the sign, which, which is literally, right, we know what signs are, I think, right, it, it's meant to represent something else, right, massively, significantly represent something else, so, you know, uh, uh, the blood represented something else, the blood wasn't just about the blood, it was the context of redemption, of, be, of salvation, that they would be brought and brought out safely by God's design and plan. And throughout the Old Testament, we have lots of other signs and symbols that are given, right, to, to, the, to, to the believing people. We had circumcision, right? We had the rainbow of, of Noah. We had the breastplate of the high priest even, right? And these were just a few signs that are given to, to the people of God throughout history. And now, because of Christ and because of his work that was done during Passover, what do we have? we have covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper that are given. We have the covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper that's given. Given to whom? Given to God's covenant people, the church. It's given to us. It's given to us, God's people, you and I. The Lord's Supper, this covenant reality is given to you and I. We are the covenant community of God. We are God's covenant people through the blood and the work of Christ, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Right? God has redeemed us. He has bought us and brought us out of our sin and bought us and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son, his beloved son, the kingdom of light in which we now live. God didn't just do this because he decided up and decided that he would just sort of willy-nilly work it all out somehow. He did it purposefully, he did it willingly, he did it, he did it actively, and he did it for his own glory through the idea and the actions of God creating a covenant with his people. And God has promised that just like the nation of Israel, God has promised to the church that he would guide us and protect us he would be with us he would never leave us he would never forsake us he would he would help us and empower us he would he would give us his word and his commandments by which we are to walk in the in obedience and in holiness and in sanctification to Christ we and to to the glory of the father we do this for the father's glory and the father's honor we do this because we are a covenant people we are a covenant people. And communion, the, the Lord's Supper, is so very important. 
I want to just offer to you, um, I want to offer to you something that is, that is been a sincerely held belief of mine for a long time, or at least, at least for several years. Let me, let me say it that way, for at least for several years. And that is the idea of because it is so important, communion should not be reserved for four times a year. It should be something that we celebrate weekly. You say, now, Pastor, the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. Well, I would say that you're sort of right, but in reality, when you look at the practice of the New Testament church, you're actually wrong. The issue is the idea and the pursuit of what is biblical and the pattern that's found for us in Scripture and that makes the best use of God's resources that are given to us. So first, let me, let me just say this. As you look at the, the book of Acts, you will see within the book of Acts that there is strong evidence of a pattern of weekly observance in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, I mean, obviously the Christians were already meeting together every day. But by the time Acts 20, verse 7 comes along, we see that on the first day of the week, when, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul spoke with them, intending to depart on the next day, and prolonged his speech until midnight. So Paul, on his way to, to, to uh, Jerusalem, right, stopped off. And he spent the time here, he spent some time here, and he states that the purpose of this, what was the purpose of this? To break bread. Now, that doesn't mean that it was the only reason they were gathered together, but they were to break bread. Now, you say, well, Pastor, wh wh what do we know? I, why doesn't this just mean to eat together? Well, first of all, uh, in Acts chapter 2, we see uh, a specific referral to the Lord's Supper being and communion being taken daily when the Christians gathered together. In, in, their, uh, in house to house, they ate together, they gathered together, and they ate together the Lord's Supper because for them the Lord's Supper was just more than just some wafers and some juice or wine. It was an entire meal with that being celebrated at the end. And so the Christians would gather together for a meal, at a love feast, and then they would, they would partake at the end of the Lord's, and, and they would partake of the Lord's Supper together. This is clearly the pattern of the New Testament church. As I said, the first day of the week, Sunday, they were meeting together, gathered together to break bread, right? And Paul preaches. He goes on to preach. But, but, uh, but, but we see a clear pattern of the Lord's Supper being celebrated week in and week out by the disciples, right? It, it, it certainly isn't um, something that, that we, we um, um, the, the centrality of communion, right, is, is I think is important. And it shouldn't be stated casually, right? And so the, the longest discussion then on the Lord's Supper is in 1 Corinthians, right? And so we talked last week a lot about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and a lot of the problems going on in the church of Corinth and a lot of the issues that happened in the church of Corinth, right? There were, there were all sorts of, of disgusting issues going on there. You know, you had, had a guy that had left his, you know, that, that, that uh, had stolen his stepmother and, and all sort of other things and they were living together and, and, and crazy stuff going on, sinfulness, division, backbiting, strife, all kinds of wickedness going on there, right? But listen to what Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And you say, well, see, the, well, that doesn't really tell us a whole lot. Oh, yes, it does. It tells us that every single week when they came together on the first day of the week to celebrate, they were eating the Lord's Supper together. And this idea of coming together technically is a technical term for gathering as the, as the local church, as the local ecclesia, 
It was the gathering of the, of the local church or the, the church at Corinth as they met and they gathered together and they ate together and suggest, the wording suggests that every time they met together in worship, they ate a meal and they partook of the Lord's Supper. Even though they were abusing it, even though they were in their practices, they were, they were not honoring Christ in it, right? And so most people point out, well, it just says as often as you eat and as often as you drink. Well, but when were they doing this? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't once a quarter. It wasn't once a month. It was every single week. The Corinthians were gathering together just like the church in Troas, just like the church in Ephesus, just like the church in every other place, and they were eating together the Lord's Supper at the end of their services. But let me, let me give you another practical, practical centerpiece here. And that is that the Lord's Supper should be, along with preaching uh, and baptism, the, centerpiece, the centerpieces of, of worship, in just in practical terms. Now, now you say, well, well why, would, why would you say that? Well, let me just say this. In, in our day and age where man reigns supreme, and in our day and age, when man's, in a man-centered age, when so many, so many services, so many worship services are shamefully devoid of any sort of meaningful reference to the cross or to the gospel or any sort of, of a, a reference to Christ and the portrayal of Christ in the gospel and his work on our behalf in the gospel, and in an increasingly visual age, I would argue that it is imperative that we put before for us as a congregation every single week the gospel in visible form the gospel in visible form you say well what is the visible form well it is the lord's supper every time we take of the bread and we break it every time we take of the cup and we drink it we are portraying christ's death burial and resurrection and his work in the gospel for us and I know that there's a lot of people who would quickly argue, and I've heard them, I've heard them all my life, who would argue things like, well, you know, this really can't be done well every single week. Well, let me simply say this. Do you know that most Baptist churches in Scotland do this, and the practices flourishes? Plus, more and more Baptist churches practice weekly communion. Now, uh, when, when I pastored at Warsaw Baptist Church down on the river, um, we, did, we, we, we actually practiced communion every other week. And it was always done in a wonderful time of worship. Um, then there's a second argument, which goes something like, yeah, but if we do it, I mean, it'll become less special. Listen, if the gospel becomes less special because you see it, you, that's a heart issue. That's a heart issue for you. If seeing the gospel becomes something, well, you know, that's just not special for me anymore. I would simply say repent. Repent. Repent of that. Because uh, while at first it may have, have, an, have an appearance of some kind of wisdom, right? as you look through and you think through, and even I think as you prayerfully walk through this, I think it's safe that if we were to apply that same standard to other things in the church, we would lose our minds. Well, you know, I think preaching should be more special. So we should only do that once a quarter. I think preaching should be more special. So I think we should only do it two times a year. Or I think, and then whatever. Right? It makes it more special that way, right? I know, I think an offering should be much more special, so let's only do it once a year. Who's with me? 
Well, that's silly, right? That's silly. We are called to set aside Sundays because it is the Lord's Day. And we are called to regular observance of this simple covenant rite tied directly to the preaching of the word so that we are built up in Christ. We need to preach the gospel and then we need to display the gospel and participate in the gospel through the Lord's Supper and by taking of the Lord's table. And the table anchors us. It anchors us into the gospel. Certainly preaching should anchor us to the gospel, but, but so does the table. The table anchors us to the gospel because it, it, it shapes everything that has come before it and reminds us of the purpose for everything that has come before us. I would also say this, those who are not in Christ are then confronted weekly, not just through the preaching of the gospel, right, and, they're, and calling them to repentance and faith in Christ, but that through the, through, the, through the watching of the partaking of the ordinance, they are then called to repent and believe the gospel. They are called to believe Christ. They are called to look to Christ. They are called to repent. And they are called to, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are confronted visibly, not just audibly, but visibly with the gospel and called to repentance and faith in Christ. Because in this, Christ is clearly portrayed as through his as 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 dying for our sins of being of his body being broken his blood being shed and the hope of the resurrection that we celebrate every single sunday so my brothers and sisters how how would i end this well you know i've thought a lot i've thought a lot about this this week while i've been on vacation and i know typically i don't try to do that but sunday is always coming and you've always got to think right pastor always has to be on his toes and always thinking so in my time alone while on vacation um, what little i had i did do some thinking about this and this is the best way i think for us to close this. Let us remember and look to Christ, our covenant-keeping and faithful God, who has been gracious to us in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins because every one of us stood condemned and damned by the law of God. And Christ Jesus came to institute the new covenant, the fulfillment of all the covenants that have gone before it and the progression of all the other covenants, the Mosaic covenant and all the others. He has fulfilled those and he now calls you, if you do not know Christ, to repent in faith and to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're to do this forsaking your own allegiance to your own self and your own way of life. Look to King Jesus. And Christian... I say the same to you, although from the other side of the cross, we look back to Christ and we, we, we look and we are gloriously um, driven to worship because of what Christ has done for us. But let me also close by saying this to you. We need constantly to look to King Jesus because it is so possible for us to end up navel gazing. All about, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? The answer is no. You're not. But the answer is you don't have to. Christ has already fulfilled the law and has called us to simple obedience empowered by the Spirit of God. The gospel empowers us. The gospel drives us. The gospel teaches us to rely and to press into Christ. 
not into greater works, but into Christ and allow that then to motivate us in this covenant relationship to honor Christ. Let's pray. Fathers, we have looked this morning at the, at the importance of, of the, the table and the, the glorious mercy that has been given to us in Christ. My, my prayer this morning is that you would help us to think deeply about Christ and the cross, to help us think deeply about, about the, the gospel and the implications that the table has for us in securing us to the gospel, in reminding us of the gospel, for allowing us to feast upon Christ. So, oh God, help us, we pray now. Teach us and instruct us for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name.